0: Welcome to Everything's Not Black and White, a podcast about perspectives with your hosts,
1: Lala and
0: Brian. How's everybody doing today?
1: Hey, we're doing great. We're doing great. We got a special, special guest today. Uh, why don't you go ahead and introduce him?
0: Our friend and extraordinaire, man about town, man who knows everything. The man, What what is that one uh, commercial? The, 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 the one with the beer? What's that one?
1: I don't know where you're going with this. The, the
0: one with the guy, <laughs> the, the 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 most interesting man in the world. Oh. That's it.
1: Oh, that okay.
0: That well, the most interesting man in the world.
1: I, I didn't realize he was that <laughs> that uh phenomenal, but he is special in his own way.
0: He is our good friend, and buddy Doug Riggle. Doug and I have been good friends for a long time. We were coworkers, um, at an organization, and then we just became fast friends. Doug is an amazing communicator, change management guru, but uh, most importantly, and for today's conversation, he is the founder of Orphan World Relief, which helps orphans uh, in foster care systems around the globe. So he does have a website, orphanworldrelief.org, that is orphanworldrelief.org, and we'll be talking a little bit more about that a little bit later, but first of all, let's just welcome Doug to the podcast.
2: Hey, Doug. Hey, guys. How you guys doing? Thank you for having me tonight.
0: Oh, we are doing excellent. We're excited to have you and for our listeners to hear your story and what you're all about. Most interesting man in the Uh, world.
2: I appreciate it. I just uh, just pretending that I'm actually not in my house and I'm actually sitting in front of you so I can mentally escape my confinement.
0: Exactly.
1: Well, I would have to put clothes on if we did that. So I don't know. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> i appreciate that yes lucky for me yeah you're not here so that's okay <laughs> well doug why don't we talk a little bit about uh your own personal life and how you have been touched by adoption
2: since early age yeah so yeah that's it's funny because it started when i was born and uh back in the 60s um so i'm dating myself a little bit i'm 55 Back in the 60s, when you got pregnant out of wedlock, you had no choice other than to give that child for adoption, for the most part. So my biological mother found herself pregnant, didn't tell my biological father. The only person who knew was her mother, and she sent her to a um, care center on the other side of the state, uh, told everyone that she had a nervous breakdown because she had been through a marriage and a divorce, and then um <laughs> gave birth to me and then she went back home. And, um, about a month later, my parents who had tried to have another child, they had a daughter, um, and tried three more times, but failed. But, uh, the parents who adopted me, they were stationed in Waverly, Iowa at the time. And, um, I was a whopping three and a half pounds when I was born. And, uh, if you could see me, you'd know I've made up for some sense, <laughs> but, uh, I was, uh, um, place for adoption and to a great family. And, um, it's It's been quite the journey ever since it's but it's really informed who I've become later in life.
0: Yeah. so did your parents tell you when you were young that you were adopted, or how did you find out that you were adopted?
2: So when I was in fifth grade, and I remember this all too well, I remember sitting in the kitchen with my mom and my dad just pacing back and forth, and my mom just would start to talk, and then she'd break down to tears. I'm thinking someone's dying, I'm dying. I didn't know what was happening, and then it gradually unfolded that I was adopted. And, of course, I'm like, okay, this is new. I understand what the adoption is, but I, at the time, I didn't know anyone in my life who was adopted. Um, and then, so, of course, I asked the this question, or who were my parents? And they weren't told the truth. Um, back then, you just, you just kind of hit everything. And so they didn't know what to tell me other than what they were told. And, um, but then they're like we have information also that we can give to you, but we'll wait till you're eighteen, like fine. The next day in school this is this is why this is time period is critical. My fifth grade class, Mrs. Sal was sitting um giving out an assignment on genetics in the Mendelian um square, where you kind of figure out eye color and who should have what
1: mm-hmm.
2: well, I didn't want really to have a failing grade because I just found out I was adopted. And as I went up to my teacher and told her that, hey, I'm adopted. I have different eye colors than my family. This isn't going to work for me. I don't want to get an F on this because I'm doing – if I do it wrong. She proceeds to tell the entire class. That's different than the rest of us. He's adopted. Oh, wow. I remember you think so horrible and kids asking me questions about if I was a bastard. And back then I was naive. I didn't even know what the word meant. I'm like, uh, no, I don't know. So that was that was my exposure to being finding out that I was adopted.
1: Now Doug, when I was I I myself was adopted later on in life and uh I was curious, did you ever go back and I know you wanted to kind of know who your parents were, but did you ever seek that out to find out uh who your who your mom and dad actually were?
2: Oh, absolutely. So I waited until so when I was in college, uh my girlfriend at the time, Gail, she and her twin sister were adopted. So we had a lot of conversations with the first person that I knew who was adopted. So we talked about it all the time. And she had started looking for her birth family. And so I waited for my parents to be gone for a weekend. I think they actually – we were living in Texas at the time. I think they actually came back to Ohio. So I I broke into their, their file case, and I found all the documents that I needed, took it to work, and photocopied it and brought it back home, and then started my search. So, or just before I turned 30, I was really, really wanting to find my mother. So I, I worked with a group that was called Relo- um, Reunite, actually. They used to be out of Reynoldsburg, Ohio, but I don't think they exist anymore. But they would help adoptees find their bi- biological family. And they gave me some information. They told me where to look. Um, and it obvious enough, it was in the Denver Post. I had to look for uh, the death obituary for my biological mother's father, my grandfather, and that would probably give you some information. Mm-hmm. Sure enough, it did. I couldn't find her information, my mother's information, but I found my grandmother's information, and I found her address because then I went and got the phone book out. Back when you'd flip through the white pages and get what you needed. Oh, found brood. her address and wrote her a letter. And about a week later, and mind you, this is when we saw the an answer machine in the house. I uh, come home from work, and my wife and I saw we had a message in an the answer machine. I heard this voice. Hi, Doug. As soon as I heard that, I knew that was my mother. Aww. It was the strangest thing ever. Wow. And she's like, this is Sherry, your mother. I'd love to talk to you more.
1: That's amazing. And how how, is, how has your relationship developed since that point?
2: Basically, welcome back to the family. Mm. I'm actually her middle child, Adelina. Um I've got a sister named Brenda, who's two years older than me, and a sister named Sheila, who's two years younger than me. So in that family, I'm the middle child. It's just the way it worked out. It's unbelievable. I go down to visit them every chance I get, at least once a year. Love spending time with them, and I uh, just love being part of their family.
0: And so did your uh, family, your adopted family, did your relationship change with them at all? Did it get stronger, or was it strained, or what happened there?
2: You know, I, I was worried about it this is while I was looking. I was worried about my parents' reaction to this. Out of the blue, one day, my dad asked me in front of my mother, have you started looking for your biological parents again? It was completely out of left field, and I just started looking. And so I'm like, okay, I could either lie or just be honest. So I was honest with them and said, hey, yeah, I actually started looking again. At that time, I hadn't learned anything. But as soon as I heard from my biological mother, I gave my parents a call to let them know. They were really cool about it. The the harder part for me was when my because I went down there probably in May of that year to visit them and um, you know seeing these people who look like me in some ways and have some of the same idiosyncrasies and things that you'd never expect like my sisters and I all hate wearing socks and shoes strange thing but it's (laughs) those those little things like that that kind of add to the story that make it kind of fun but my mother told me she never told my biological father she was pregnant. Mm. and she actually said here you go here's his information and he still lives in the same small town in Iowa but it took me quite a long time to figure out a way to contact him so that I wouldn't disrupt his family because I didn't know what his, you know if he was married what his wife Mm would think about this he didn't know I existed obviously then how would anyone else know and I didn't want to disrupt the family you know in any sort of way but I I felt he had the right to know he had a son my dad's response was well I guess that's possible (laughs) no 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 secrets there so um they devised a plan because then my dad had to tell his wife and his youngest daughter amanda and then my brother-in-law was going to take my sister his wife sadie to lunch and tell her that's actually a great story because he took her to lunch and he had all my emails in a file folder when they got to, you know sat down at the restaurant he started acting very nervous. She sees these whole file folders and she realizes that these are like printouts of emails. She starts accusing him of having internet affairs, <laughs> and screaming out in the restaurant. All that said, finally she got tried to get her to quiet down, and she's screaming louder. At this boy, I guess, causing commotion. He's like, "They're from your brother." She's oh, like, man. "I don't have a brother." And I'll leave out the expletive that she used. <laughs> <about>. <laughs> He took the file folder top of the hair and says, what do you do now? <laughs> so later on that year, I went out there for a visit. Uh, my dad and I did a DNA test and it came back and he gave me a call and said, well, it says I'm 99.0001% your father. And I've had a great relationship with them ever since.
0: Wow. That's, that's such a great, happy ending uh, to your story as an adoptee. So that's amazing. Um, but we obviously know that not everybody's story has that same kind of happy ending. Um, so oh, absolutely. let's talk a little bit about the work, uh, number one, that you started with Orphan World Relief.
2: Sure. So, you know, Orphan World Relief really began back in the late 90s. I was doing some missions work in Ukraine and fell in love with some of the work doing them. This is right after the fall of communism. Came across some homeless boys that I'd spent a day with and just kind of hung out with them and played soccer with them and, you know, shared a little bit about my life with them. I had an interpreter, of course, my, my Ukrainian doesn't go that far or my Russian. Um, But really had a great time with these boys. And there was a young man there who was worked for the church that I was there to support doing some missions work. And he got $145 a month from an American couple that paid for all his living expenses and gave him the free time to really be an advocate for the homeless boys in that area. There were quite a few of them then at that time. Um, spent some time with them, like I said, one day. The next day, uh, there was a small group of us going to go visit an orphanage a little ways out of the city, but we, not too far from where the um, homeless boys were living. We walked under a bridge, and I kept hearing someone call my name. Now, this is my first trip to Ukraine, and i like, Okay, this is, I'm just hearing things. I'm hearing, I thought, you know, Doug and Da, which means yes. Maybe someone's just saying yes really loudly. Um, Ukrainians are very passionate people and get very loud when they're arguing. Mm-hmm. So I ignored it. And then finally, a very emphatic little voice called my name and I heard Doug. And I turned around and the bridge I just walked under, up at the rafters were all these little boys that I'd spent the day with the day before. That's Aww. where they slept that night. Oh, and at that moment, I realized I had to come back and do something to make a difference. Now, oddly enough, at the same time, um, so this is fast, fast fast and curious through my uh, family history. I was married when I met my biological mother, divorced by the time I met my biological father. I was also in the process of adopting. So I adopted my son out of the foster care system here locally when he was 13, so that was all going on at the same time I was forming the idea for Orphan Relief Um It took a while. It took to really 2008 to get Orphan Relief off the ground after doing some a lot of business planning and building a um, board, um, really figuring out how funding would work, how we would differentiate ourselves from other programs, looking at orphans and at-risk kids. Um, so it was a bit of a long labor of love, but it was uh, worth it every step of the way. And we, 2008, we we launched. 2011, we got our 5123 status um, from the IRS formally. Since then, we've been slowly growing and expanding um, what we do, support orphans. We've come alongside the the four areas of support that we provide um, for kids around the globe. Internationally, uh, we come alongside of programs that are already well-run, well-established, and help them to become more self-sufficient. For example, we built a chicken and cattle farm with a, a program in Honduras that works with HIV orphans. We also helped create a um, goat farm and another small farm in India for a uh, young pastor and his wife who just had the g- girls dumped on his doorstep, and hey, he had to start an orphanage as a result of that. And Those, th- those little things are there help them become more self-sufficient and less dependent on Western dollars. So we... We have quite a few programs internationally that we work with. We also work with foster kids here in the United States. Our main program right now is My Comfy Kits. that provides backpacks to kids entering foster care for the first time. Right now, this is in the state of Ohio. We have three locations, Fayette County, Franklin County, and Summit County, that impact the counties around them as well, so it's a little hard to pinpoint exactly where we operate, but those are the main centers of, of uh, work that we do. And the backpacks provide um, just items that kids need. When you enter foster care, a lot of times you would show up at someone's house at the middle of the night, you don't know, maybe the clothes in your back, maybe just a diaper, and nothing is yours. And so we provide them with a little bit of dignity and hope. The backpack has a change of clothes. it has a blanket. Uh, my very own blanket here in Columbus makes those for us. Um, it provides we get a night light. Older kids get a journal. Every kid gets a stuffed animal, whether they're 18 or, or 2, they get a stuffed animal, and just want to provide them with a sense of dignity.
0: That's wonderful. We're
2: also working, we're also working to develop um, new foster care programs to the kids who age out of the foster care system. So every year across the United States, about 20,000 kids, and it's going to go higher now because of the opioid crisis, about 20,000 kids age out of the foster care system without hope and without their support system. So we're, I'm in the process of hiring someone, being someone under a staff who can help run those programs. But I'm also uh, excited to see uh, what we can do to help these kids have a better start to life rather than suddenly being on the streets and having nothing.
0: That's an incredibly noble and admirable and inspiring way to help young people across the globe and especially here in our home state of Ohio. Doug, so that's really commendable, and I and I've been able to see you, several probably the last six seven years grow, and develop orphan girl relief and and touch so many people. So it's been a real honor to watch you grow in that way.
2: I appreciate that. It's been it's been tough to know how to grow the needs of so many. A year ago, this past March, I was in uh, Lesbos, Greece, working with refugees coming who are flooding the island right now from Eastern Europe, Turkey, uh, Africa, the Middle East, from all over the world, from 30 different countries or more. And they're flooding this area called um, Camp Moria, which was originally built to be a um, government prison. And now it's it's supposed to house about 2,200 people. Last time I looked, it was 20,000 people there who are flooding the island as refugees. Half of these kids are kids. And we're trying to do what we can to help support the work that's going on um, for these kids at the same time. Yeah. It's a uh, its of great to see. And it's kind of a silence right now that no one's talking about it because of the um, uh, COVID-19 yeah. virus breakout. Yeah. But what we're worried about, too, is if the virus breaks out there on the island in that camp, it could devastate the population.
0: Oh, yeah, that is... Extremely heartbreaking to hear, for sure. So I want to go back to this uh, a bit. You said that you were in the process of adopting your own child a while back at the age of thirteen. So I want you to talk to folks about that story a little bit.
2: Sure. So, uh, my son, I uh, got him when he was thirteen. From age five to thirteen, he was in fifteen different foster home placements. That did a lot of damage to him, obviously, but. You know, we had a great relationship. There were obviously some trouble times. I I don't always recommend adopting a teenager, but there are a lot of teenagers out there who need to be adopted. And my goal when I went to adopt was not to adopt a baby. There are enough two-parent families out there who can handle infants. My goal was to find a a kid who really needed a home. Mm -hmm. And I found Richie online, and it took a while for the process to go through. I was actually... In Ukraine for a month two weeks before he moved in with me so it was mm-hmm. I came back to the States and he moved in with me and then that was during the summertime and then he started school in the fall and it was just an, an, just an amazing uh, time amazing relationship between us I wish you guys uh, could have met him yeah. sadly uh, he passed away when he was uh, 22 he um, his biological mother was bipolar and I can't tell you for sure what happened. All I know is in the middle of the night, I get a phone call from him, and my phone was on went to voicemail, and I didn't hear it ring. This was about 1 o'clock in the morning, and he called me to say goodbye. So uh, something woke me up about one thirty or so. I got the message, tried to call him back, couldn't get hold of him. Got in my car, drove over to his apartment at the same time, calling the police, calling the paramedics. Um, They took him to OSU. He had shot himself. They took him to OSU uh, Medical Center, where he later passed away Mm. later that day. But, um, you know, it it was just interesting. It's like talking to his friends about what was going on that day. And he he quit his job out of the blue. What we assume is that he was starting to develop some bipolar issues. But without someone being there to see that and monitor that, they wouldn't necessarily recognize it for what it was. It it, it was tough. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the toughest thing I've ever been through in my life. Um, loved that kid dearly. Got to baptize him at my church. I, I, I know where he is, and I know I'll see him again. Uh, but people ask me, well, what would you do different? I'm like, I don't know that I could have done anything different. Mm-hmm. You know, I uh, I can't. I would never change our relationship in any shape or form, and I'd do it all over again if I had to.
1: Yeah, absolutely. One thing I've I've heard people say uh, is, like, you can never love uh, an adopted child like your own child. And being that uh, not only have you adopted, you've been adopted, I've been adopted, and I have adopted my wife's daughter, Um, that's just simply not true. You just spoke how much you loved your child, and I had that same admiration and love for my daughter as if she was my own flesh and blood. So that, that's a very uh, misleading representation of really how involved people get involved in these these children's lives when they adopt them.
2: Absolutely, Brian. You know, if anyone ever said that to me, uh, they might actually hear me swear because believing that you love that child less is just BS.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And I might use some more expletives because that is <laughs> not true.
0: It is absolutely true. Well, I mean, I appreciate you so much. Love you so much. You've been such a dear friend to our entire family. And we know, you know, how much you care about the children around this world. And we're so grateful to have you in our lives and for you to share your story, Doug. So we really appreciate you coming on the show today. But if people want to help support you and Orphan World Relief, what can they do?
2: Oh, that especially this time, right now, we've lost three donors uh, the past week just because of the uh, um, shutdown of everything, and I completely understand that. So if you can help, go to orphanworldrelief.org, go to our donate page. There are multiple ways that you can give, and we appreciate anything and everything we can get. Um, it's just an amazing thing. We even had to shut down our fundraisers for this year because we don't have the capacity or capability to plan them because no one's there to help us on the other end. Yeah. But that would be a, a you know a great thing, and I, I've got to say too, the daughter that you guys are raising, I mean, she's my dog sitter too. So I, I have I've known her a little bit over the past few years. You guys are raising an amazing woman, and I, I can't wait to see what she does. It's, good parents are hard to come by in this world of seems like. and yeah. I just appreciate what you guys are doing uh, with Ozzie.
1: Oh, thank you. That's thank very nice. You. And Doug, your mission is so important there. I was reading a few stats and one of the ones that really stuck out to me was there's an estimated 14 million orphans in the world. And what they said with that, if you put all the orphans in the world together, you would have the 14th largest country in the world. I I believe that was what it said. And that's kind of astounding that there's that many children out there that uh, need that guidance. So your work is is amazing, and we're glad that you're doing it, and mm. that you're being that beacon of light for a lot of these uh, young kids that need help.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Oh, I appreciate it. You know, it's the, the numbers are kind of scary, even when I look at them, because we're 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 like the guy throwing the starters back into the ocean, and like I can't impact them all, and I really want to, but I can't. Um, even in 2020, the Ohio alone expects to have 20,000 kids in foster care, mm. and I know right now that there aren't 20,000 foster families out there. Right. So that's that with me. I don't know what we're going to do. You know, and if you can't support Orphan World Relief financially, maybe you can become a foster parent or maybe you can adopt a child yourself. It doesn't have to be about supporting us. It never has been. It's about doing something, though, to make a difference in the life of a child.
0: Absolutely.
1: Yeah, quite a few people in America talk about adoption, but so few actually take the step to do it. And if they did that, there would probably be zero orphans or, or kids that need adopted in this country if just those people that talk about it would actually take action and do something
2: yeah. amen to that yeah
0: well thank you again Doug you know we love you so much and we just appreciate your heart it's as big as the moon and we're just grateful uh for you and for being on our show today
2: love to reciprocate right back at you guys and I just can't wait to see what you're uh what you guys do in the future and I can't wait to become Ozzy's greatest fan. And she gets out there doing all the great work.
1: You got a lot of competition because she's got a lot of fans.
2: <laughs> <laughs> um, yep. True story. I'll put fourth, fourth or fifth down the line. Yeah.
0: It's all right. We'll, we'll, she'll take them all. She'll take them all, Doug. <laughs> Thanks so sure. much, buddy. You have a great night. You're welcome. Thanks, everyone, uh, for listening. Care. We'll talk to you soon. And if you want to join us, how do they join us, Brian?
1: How do they join us? Well, they could like us on our Facebook page or if they want to interact with us, they could actually send us an email at enbwpodcast at gmail.com. And we like to uh, hear what people have to say or thoughts. We could pass on messages to Doug or or anybody else that you from previous programs and we'd love to hear from you.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody. Join us next time. Have a great evening. Stay safe. This has been Everything's Not Black and White a podcast about perspectives with your hosts, Lala and Brian, a production of LBB Edutainment.